Let's begin with prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. And may they land in the hearts of your people today. May they encourage them, they build them up and draw them to you. In Christ's name, amen. Use the handheld instead. Is that better? Now it is. Wow. All right. Now you can hear me, and, and don't worry, God heard the prayer if you didn't. <laughs> now, once upon a time, there was a rich man and a poor man who lived next to each other. The rich man had many flocks and many herds, but the poor man had nothing but a single little ewe lamb that he had raised alongside his own children, feeding it from his table and letting it drink from his cup. It was more than a pet to him. It was like a daughter. Now, a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he was unwilling to take from his own flocks to prepare a meal for his guests, so he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for him instead. Wait, what? The rich man did what? The one who had many flocks of sheep and goats decided to steal his poor neighbor's prized little lamb and prepare a feast from it instead? Now, when the king of the land heard of this injustice, his anger was kindled, and he immediately pronounced judgment upon that rich man who had stolen and slaughtered that poor man's one and only lamb, saying, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he took no pity. However, at that moment, the one who told this story to the king turned the king's words back on him. You are the man, he said. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You, King David, have struck down your servant Uriah with the sword and have taken his wife Bathsheba to be your wife. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And David suddenly seeing the evil of his actions, confessed to the storytelling prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And thus began a period of great suffering for the king. In the days to come, he would lose his newborn son, the fruit of his sinful relationship with Uriah's wife, and then go on to experience endless family strife. Just read the rest 
of 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 12, to see what I mean. But despite all the horrible consequences of his sin, David's life was spared. And he went on to experience a deeper, stronger relationship with God. Yes, he deserved to die. But the Lord responded differently to David than anyone could have expected. For the prophet told him, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Instead of exacting judgment, God forgave him. And in response, King David penned a psalm of penance, prayer, and praise to God. Thankfully, we have his words preserved for us in the form of Psalm 51. Let's read and ponder them together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight and write sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's a lot we can learn from Psalm 51. For we, like David, are sinners too. And we, like David, suffer the consequences of our sins. Yet Psalm 51 doesn't read like a dirge of the damned or a prelude to doom. Rather, it's remarkably happy and hopeful. By its end, you get the sense that David is nearly dancing with delight. How can this be? How can a guilty sinner be so full of joy? Let's take a closer look and learn alongside David. Let's ponder the same truths he pondered, and in so doing, discover the same delight. See, David happened upon two remarkable truths as he wrote Mark, uh, Psalm 51. It can be summed up as follows. Number one, our sin runs deeper than we know. Number two, God's desire to cleanse it runs deeper still. Now let me say that again. Our sin runs deeper deeper than we know, yet God's desire to cleanse it runs deeper still. First, our sin runs deep. David knew he was a sinner. He'd already confessed his failings to the prophet, and here in the opening verses of Psalm 51, he confesses his guilt again and begs for God to cleanse him. Listen to these cries for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. But David didn't stop there. In the next three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, he begins to probe the depth of his sin and its pervasiveness. You see, he doesn't just sin occasionally. He sins a lot. And in verse 3, he admits that his sin is ever before him. He's very aware of his sin. He knows it intimately. That's what I know my transgressions implies. Intimate experience with evil. You could say he's swimming in sin. It's all around him. He can't escape it. And his sin isn't just against people. In the next verse, he admits that it's primarily against God. In fact, he says it this way, against you, you only have I sinned. 
in stating it this way, he's not minimizing the very real harm he caused Uriah and others. Rather, David is recognizing that the ultimate one whom he has betrayed is God himself. You see, God is the one who created David and installed him as king. God is the one who called David to obey him and worship him everywhere, always. By choosing to disrespect God and do what was evil in God's sight, David has forfeited his right to be king. His sin has severed his relationship with God, and he deserves to be judged. That's what the latter part of verse 4 is saying. David's sin against God demands justice because God is just in all his words and blameless in all his judgment. David, in contrast, is most definitely not just and not blameless. He's a sinner. He's not worthy of any association with God. He is guilty as charged. He deserves to die. But that's not all. David's sin runs deeper still. He's not only swimming in sin, verse 3. He's not only guilty of sin, verse 4. He's a sinner through and through. Verse 5. Notice how verse 5 begins. I love how the ESV retains the literal translation of the original here. In the ESV, verse 5 begins with a simple word, behold. Now that's a word that may not carry much weight in English, but in Hebrew literature, this word is meant to be an attention grabber. It's meant to alert the reader to what immediately follows. The word behind behold can also mean, look here, listen up, pay attention. Do you know what? How about this? Apparently, David wants us to pay close attention to what Psalm 51, verse 5, says. And what does it say? It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And what does that mean? It means that David has been a sinner since birth, since conception, since he came to be. David has been a sinner all along. He didn't start sinning when he first conspired to kill Uriah or when he first lusted after Bathsheba. He's been swimming in sin and guilty of sin since way before he can remember. According to verse 5, he has been thoroughly corrupted by sin since his life began in the womb. Yes, his sin runs very deep indeed. And David owns it. The fact that he is a sinner through and through is truth to him. It's a truth he accepts without reservation. It's a truth that enables him to lay hold of and appreciate another 
far more remarkable truth, one that David unveils for us in the very next verse. Verse 6 begins with another, Behold, look here, pay close attention to what follows. You thought verse 5 was important. You were right. But wait till you hear what verse 6 has to say. In verse 6, David, speaking of God, declares, You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What David's communicating in this verse is twofold. The first phrase God delights to find truth deep inside human, the human heart. And the second phrase, God puts truth deep inside the human heart. That's what teaching wisdom does, by the way, as it says in the verse there. It imparts truth about God and truth about us. It makes us wise. But perhaps the most remarkable thing about this verse isn't so much the fact that God imparts wisdom to sinful humans, but that he delights to do so. Once again, the ESV serves us well by translating the word in verse 6 as delight. Many other English translations go with desire, which isn't bad, but it's slightly weaker. Desire means that God wants to impart truth. Delight takes desire a step further. God doesn't just want to impart truth to the heart. He delights in doing so. He takes great pleasure in it. He thoroughly enjoys implanting truth in the inward being. Now, we may find that hard to fathom, for we don't usually associate the word delight with God, especially regarding us. We rarely think of him as one who has a big smile on his face, giddy with joy and eager to do what he loves to do. But according to Psalm 51, verse 6, he does. And just what does he delight to do? Well, he delights to put wisdom and truth in the inner man. But verses 7 and 8 add to the list. There's more. You see, in the original, verses 7 and 8 are not requests, as we read here in English. They're statements of promise. They're statements of truth. The tense of the verbs in verses 7 and 8 actually read as follows, and I'll, we'll have it put up here for you. You will purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You will wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You will make me hear joy and gladness. The bones that you have broken will rejoice. When read this way, by inserting the words you will in front of each request, each verse becomes more than a request. Each verse becomes a statement of truth about what God will do. 
And what does God promise to do? He promises to purge us and cleanse us from sin. He promises to make us rejoice and be glad. This is what he wants to do. This is what he delights in doing. God delights in cleansing sin and in making sinners glad in him. But how? How can a just God who hates sin delight in cleaning it up? How can God rightly put away sin like David's and not punish him for it? The text gives us a clue in verse 7. Notice where it says, You will purge me with hyssop. What's hyssop? And what's it used for? Well, hyssop is a shrub, a small plant with fuzzy brush-like leaves that can be used to scrub or wash or even paint with. In the Old Testament, hyssop was used to apply sacrificial blood to things. Here's an example from the Exodus. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You see, this is what David is referencing when he declares that God will cleanse him with hyssop. God promised David that he would pass over his sins because God was looking at the blood of another sacrifice. Rather than exact the punishment of death upon David, God was going to purge his sin and spare his life via the shed blood of someone else. Now, David didn't know whose blood would substitute for his when he penned Psalm 51. But he did know that God was going to do it somehow, some way, and he took God at his word. Yes, David's sin ran deep, but God's desire to cleanse him by the blood of another ran deeper still. And David responded to this good news in full assurance of faith. Let's return to the text and learn from David's response. The first thing we can observe from David as he responds to the good news of God's forgiveness is prayer. David prayed for it. Now, in all honesty, David's prayer for forgiveness began back in verses 1 and 2 with his opening cry for God to have mercy upon him and to blot out his transgressions and to wash and cleanse him from his sin. Those are prayers. But now, after rehearsing the truths of verses 3 through 8, he begins to pray the promises back to God. 
Notice what he does in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You had just promised that to me two verses earlier, that you would purge me. So I'm praying that you hide your face from my sins now. I'm asking you to do what you promised to do. And then in verse 10, he asked God to create in him a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within him. Now, David knows his heart is cold and hard. He knows his spirit is thoroughly bent towards evil. Yet, because God delights to implant truth and impart wisdom in the secret heart, verse 6, remember, David can now confidently pray for that too. And he does. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And in verses 11 and 12, David goes on to pray for the remaining promise, the one that was in verse 8 about making him hear joy and gladness. But he kind of goes about it in a roundabout way. Rather than just straight up asking for happiness, he requests something much more important. He prays for restoration of relationship. You see, David knew that his problem was more than just sin against God. His bigger problem was the result of that sin. His sin had driven him from God. He had lost intimacy with God. His relationship was severed with God. And it was for this, a renewed relationship with God, that David prays most earnestly. Listen to his cries. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, David knew where true joy lay. It was in his relationship with God, and he desperately needed God's Holy Spirit to lay hold of that joy, to restore unto him the joy of his salvation, and to uphold him with a willing spirit. A willing spirit to do what? A willing spirit to obey God, to please God, and to be upheld by him. For if David's joy in God, this is what he's thinking, if David's joy in God grew stronger than his desire to sin, then sin's hold on David would be broken. His willingness to please God and enjoy him would go up, while his desire to sin and displease God would go down. He's going to go for the joy in God, not the false joy in sin. We can learn much from David's example here on prayer. You see, we too can listen to the truth from God, promises from God. We can believe what he says and then pray it back to him, just like David did. When God promises to cleanse us from our sins, we can confidently ask that he do it. When God promises to give us a new heart and a new spirit steeped in wisdom and truth, we can pray for that too, like David did. 
And when God promises to ultimately make us hear joy and gladness again in a direct relationship with him, we can ask for and expect that too. Another thing we can learn from David is modeled in the next set of verses, verses 13 through 15. I'll sum this section up with one word, proclamation. We can proclaim. David proclaimed. We can proclaim. What does David do after praying God's promises? Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. He tells others. He teaches them. Yes, he teaches them this. Yes, your sin runs deep, but God's desire to cleanse it runs deeper still. Don't you see it? God purged me, David, the murderer. God washed me, the adulterer. God drew me close, and he gave me his joy despite my sin, despite my guilt. He can do the same for you. He can deliver you from your blood guiltiness. He can save you from your sin. And he can become the God of your salvation too. But by the end of verse 14, David's proclamation, his teaching, has kind of morphed into full-on praise. See it there? And my tongue will sing aloud, sing aloud of your righteousness. Now he's singing about it. Not just teaching, he's singing about it. Oh Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise, verse 15. So there, when you behold the promises of God, when you believe the promises of God, when you pray the promises of God, and you tell others about the promises of God, you praise your God. For what he's doing and what he's done. But there's another very important lesson to learn from David's response, which is modeled in the last verses, the closing verses of the Psalm, 16 through 19. Despite David's joy and God's goodness towards him, David never takes any credit for it unto himself. He retains an attitude of humility. Notice what David never does in this psalm. Not once does he promise God to try harder. Not once does he promise God that he'll do better next time. Not once does he tell God to give him another chance just to prove that he won't make that big sin mistake again. And that's what we tend to do when we sin, or I should say that's what I tend to do when I sin, I tend to try harder in my own strength. I tend to promise God that I won't make that same mistake again. I try to solve my own sin problem through my own efforts, not by throwing myself on the mercy of God like David did. In fact, I try to appease God with my own burnt offering. I try to do exactly what David tells me not to do in verse 16, which says, For you, God, 
will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. God is not pleased when I bring my own burnt offering. God is not just annoyed when I do it. He's outright displeased. He hates it. Remember what he said back in verse 6? God delights to put truth in the inward being. Or as we've learned, God delights to do the work of cleansing his way, not our way. Now here in verse 16, this delight word makes another appearance, the same delight word. (laughs) But it's being used to opposite effect. God does not delight in our efforts to cleanse ourselves, in our attempts to fix our sin, in our empty promises to reform ourselves. You see, our sin problem is just too big. We cannot resolve it without Him. All we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy of God, believe that He will do it, do the cleansing, and then receive it. You see, God's the one who does good design in His good pleasure, not us. But the final verse has another delight word show up in it. And it's a little surprising because it sounds like a contradiction of verse 16. Verse 16, he said, I will not delight in sacrifice. Verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices. So the same God who didn't delight in my sacrifice suddenly is delighting in right sacrifices. What's he referring to here? Fortunately, uh, verse 17 gives us the answer. What are the right sacrifices? Verse 17 tells us, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There it is. Humility. A recognition that it's God who does the cleansing, not us. And when we bring our sacrifices to God, that way, they're right. David was humble when he wrote Psalm 51. He was humble because he believed one simple truth. He was convinced that his sin ran deep, too deep for him to fix on his own. That truth kept him humble. It should keep us humble too. But that truth only prepared him for another deeper truth, a truth lodged in the very desires of God, a truth that we must believe also. For we can only come to experience God as our Savior when we believe the same two truths that David beheld in Psalm 51. Number one, that our sin runs deep. Number two, God's desire to cleanse it runs deeper still. Let's pray. Father God,
We're humbled when we think of these truths. We know we need your salvation, and we know you've made a way. For unlike David, who didn't know who it was that purged his sin, we know, because we're on the other side of it. For a thousand years after David came one Jesus, who lived a blameless life, and yet willingly shed his blood to purge the sins of all those who draw near to him and believe in him. We know that truth. Lord God, help that truth lodge in our hearts and make us hear joy and gladness and have mercy on us. In Christ's name, amen.